Hello and welcome to The Intersection. We really appreciate you being with us. You may have noticed we have new theme music. It's composed by my good friend Tevin Thomas, who was my musical director back in the day when I used to do my talk show from the stage at the world-famous Apollo Theater. He currently plays with the Sun Ra Orchestra, and we had a great time together at the Tate Modern Museum in London recently. He did an album a few years back called Piano Works. The name of that track is Yesterday's, and I think it's fabulous. Now to the business at hand. I'm not going to try to explain the great replacement theory. It's truly not worth my time. Yet for its role in the recent Buffalo Massacre, there are growing calls for some of its more public adherents to be locked up. America passed a deadly milestone recently, a million people dead from coronavirus. At the same time, an alarming number of people who are catching the virus have been vaccinated. Oklahoma tries to out Texas, Texas, with, of course, the stiffest anti-abortion law in the country. And by the way, they're proud of it. Inflation figures continue on an upward trajectory, leading some experts to predict a recession could be coming soon. Does the GOP actually have a plan to fight it? And there's a shortage of baby formula. Women are being told just breastfeed. Will that work? And there's a heat wave in Southern Asia, in Spain, and in the U.S. Is it just another example of climate change in action? But first, the replacement theory. I hesitate to call it great because it's so incredibly stupid and we now know the deadly attack that was mentioned in our last episode was part and parcel of the replacement theory. At least the alleged assassin says that he was a proponent of the great replacement theory. Now, I don't know exactly how we're supposed to deal with this. I don't know when I say deal with it, I'm talking about processing it because something this stupid ended up being so deadly at the same time. Now, we can go back and look and start to ascertain exactly who promoted this particular theory. I mentioned there were people in media and on the far-right websites that have been trumpeting this garbage for a long time now. In short, it's a theory that says the Democratic Party is looking to replace white Americans with immigrants. That's right, white Americans with immigrants, immigrants of color, so they can lock up electoral politics forever. Listen, I know it's nonsense, absolute nonsense. People who espouse it also know it's nonsense. Now, the principal exponent of this is none other than Fox News alleged personality, Tucker Carlson. While the accused Buffalo shooter, whose name is, I, I really hate to give him, you know, uh, any publicity by naming him, but his name is Peyton Gendron. He may not have mentioned Carlson by name, but it's worth noting that a recent New York Times deep dive into Carlson's program found that he devoted 50 hours of content to the replacement theory which, of course, he supports. A former Fox News political reporter, Carl Cameron, recently told MSNBC that President Biden needs to start locking up replacement theories advocates. Locking them up. Of course, there's no chance of that actually happening, but you know what I'm saying? 
uh, he's not the only one. Bette Midler has said essentially the same thing. But here's the deal. Fox News will never, ever reprimand its star host for espousing this or any other racist sputum that comes out of his mouth. The reason is simple, and I've said this before as well. It's money. The Murdoch family, who run Fox News, make good money providing a platform for racist, xenophobic, misogynistic, homophobic tripe. When challenged, at least in the U.S., they run and hide behind the First Amendment. My brother once told me that you can't be halfway for the First Amendment. That the only way to counter bad speech is with better speech. The Buffalo Massacre has sorely tested my belief in that principle. And yet, it's true. A racist like Tucker Carlson has the right to spew his right-wing idiocy for money. And make no mistake, that is why he's doing it. There's one thing I wish, beyond people deciding not to watch his show, which I know won't happen. I wish the families of all the people who were killed by Peyton Gendron would sue Carlson personally and Fox News as well for shouting fire in the crowded theater of current American discourse. Probably won't happen either. And social media is passing a list of white government who kill blacks and manage to be arrested without losing their lives. It's juxtaposed against the number of black people who were killed by police who were unarmed. On top of this comes a Washington Post Ipsos poll that shows three quarters of black Americans surveyed think either they or someone they love will be attacked because of their race. Only 8% were surprised by the Buffalo Massacre and 10% think race relations will improve in their lifetime, while 53% think it will get worse. That black America should have this view should frighten all people in this country who value lives other than their own. It should also serve as an abject lesson to those who think we now live in a racism-free society. On another front, America has surpassed 1 million deaths due to coronavirus. That's the highest known total on planet Earth. There are a number of possible reasons for this, including uneven COVID responses from state to state, resistance among many Americans to safety measures and vaccines once they became available. The virus, looked at from the beginning, has shown a remarkable ability to confound both medical and scientific experts. Just this past February, 2,500 people a day were dying across America. Now it's declined to 300 per day. Maybe that's why so many Americans think the worst is over and that we can start discussing COVID in the past tense. We don't want to think about the possibility that a new variant, one that's resistant to current vaccines, will sweep the country. We don't want another lockdown. Many people don't want to wear masks. Could any of this be reasons why the number of people contracting coronavirus seems to be rising, in some cases, alarmingly? And here's the tough part. Are we forgetting about those one million lost lives because it's too painful to look back and we simply want to go on with life? One would hope not. Up next, how can any state brag about having the most restrictive abortion laws in the nation? Just ask. Oklahoma. This is The Intersection.
join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last week, legislators in Oklahoma passed a bill essentially banning abortions in that state. The state's governor, Kevin Stitt, says he wants Oklahoma to be the most pro-life state in the country. This bill, should he sign it, would ban abortion from the moment of fertilization. That's right, the moment of fertilization. That is, if you're paying attention, a near total ban. It is also the most invasive intrusion into a personal decision of a woman since before Roe v. Wade. And these people are proud of themselves. The bill pimps off Texas law that allows individuals to sue anyone who has aided or abetted an abortion. Here's how the Washington Post put it, and this is a direct quote. Under the bill, those who could be sued include anyone who performs or induces an abortion, anyone who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, including paying for one, and anyone who even intends to engage in either of the two actions above. Aside from allowing ordinary citizens with no knowledge of a woman's situation to become bounty hunters, going to court to essentially soothe a medical procedure, that's what they're doing. They are suing a medical procedure. They're suing an individual, but they are suing an individual for having a medical procedure. Ironically, the bill does exempt abortions necessary to save the life of the mother, thanks loads, and in cases of rape, sexual assault, or incest. Like I said, thank God for small mercies. Of course, many have condemned the bill, which passed by a 73 to 16 vote. You might ask, who gets to sue the father? Sorry, but from what I can tell, there's no such provision for that in the bill. This and many other bills and laws passed recently are in anticipation of the repeal of Roe v. Wade. As we mentioned last episode, Republicans in Congress have little appetite for passing a federal law guaranteeing a woman's right to choose. Why, you might ask? Because politicians triangulate. And what I mean by that is they look at what their downside might be to any position that they took. That's right, downside. And in this case, Republican politicians in particular see no political danger in staying out of the abortion battle, leaving it to the courts and individual states to deal with. The one thing that would change their minds would be a wholesale political backlash against the anti-abortion movement at the polls. Much as I'd love to see it happen, right now I think the chances are slim. I said in past episodes that they'll be coming for contraception and same-sex marriage next. And don't be surprised when they do. Seems there are others who are now talking about the same thing I was talking about. I fear for our nation's future. And now, on to a crisis that's affecting babies who are already here, and their mothers. There is a critical shortage, and I mean critical shortage, of baby formula throughout the United States. It's so bad that President Biden has authorized importing formula from Europe. The origins of the shortage go back to last September, 
when Abbott Laboratories, makers of popular baby formulas like Similac, recalled infant formula and closed a manufacturing plant in Sturgis, Michigan. Four infants developed bacterial infections and two of them died. Now, Abbott, for its part, maintains there's no link between their products and the illnesses. There were already supply chain issues, but that plant closure made things worse, a lot worse. Two things have to be thrown into the mix here. The shortages are hitting poor families especially hard, since half the poor babies who receive a government benefit to buy formula end up being supplied by Abbott. The other issue is the simple fact that black mothers breastfeed at a lower rate than white moms and are therefore more dependent on baby formula. Now, that may be a bad thing. I'm not here to argue that. I'm not getting into that kind of discussion. That's a woman's right to choose. But of course, people always seem to want to make decisions for women. And of course, there's this. Abbott has been accused of kicking windfall profits to shareholders rather than repairing or replacing equipment that may have been responsible for leaking bacteria into the formula in the first place at its Sturgis, Michigan plant. This is according to Abbott's own financial records and several whistleblower documents. To give you an idea of the money involved here, Abbott's profits rose by 94% from 2019 to last year. During that time, Bacteria was detected eight times. Just at the time that the baby started getting sick, Abbott's shareholders were getting healthy to the tune of a 25% increase in dividends and a stock buyback program worth $5 billion. Of course, Abbott denies share buybacks hurt safety, but in this case, facts are facts. Abbott and three other companies control 90% of the market for baby formula. Abbott alone makes 43% of all U.S. formula. Now, it could be that Abbott is totally blameless and that bacteria came from outer space and not from their defective equipment. Yet, does anyone want to argue that handing out money and stock to shareholders like Christmas candy is bad optics when infants have died and there's a nationwide formula shortage? Keep in mind that the buybacks, like the one Abbott just pulled off, were illegal before 1982. Regardless, the weight of the formula shortage, like abortion, falls on women. Some have created networks to procure formula and dispense it to those who might need it. What's problematic is that very few experts seem to know when the shortage will end. Some say it could lead to more mothers breastfeeding their children, but not all mothers are able to do so in quantities sufficient to keep a child healthy. And that is the point, isn't it? The health of the child. And finally, planet Earth is heating up in South Asia and in parts of Europe and in the U.S. What gives? Then there's inflation now giving fears to a recession. Anybody got a plan to fix any of it? This is The Intersection.
Welcome back to The Intersection. As Americans, we're too often oblivious to what goes on in the world beyond our borders. So I would guess a large number of us did not pay much attention to the fact that India and Pakistan were experiencing searing heat at the end of last month into this one. 115 degrees in India, that's Fahrenheit, and 120 Fahrenheit in Pakistan. Yet we always pay attention when record heat hits us. Fact is, it has. Same with Spain. When those temperatures are reached for an extended period, especially in areas with little or no air conditioning, human survival can well be at stake. The bad news is that these high temperatures may no longer be seen as outliers, something that happens once or twice in a generation. Seems like what experts call deadly heat is becoming more and more frequent. Consider this, courtesy of an op-ed in the New York Times by David Wallace Wells. He points out that half the fossil fuel emissions in the history of mankind have been generated in the past 30 years. Now, we ought to be fair about this. For a very, very long time in human history, there was no fossil fuel emissions because fossil fuel had not been invented yet as a means of power generation, etc., etc. But still, half the emissions in the history of the world have been generated in the past 30 years. He also says the 10-year average of global temperatures has risen 25% in just five years all of which points to the notion that the planet can no longer simply hold meetings in posh settings and assure each other that simply something that is will be done in the great by and by. But still we dither and will keep dithering until the world our grandkids inherit is a very different, more scary one than the one we have now. And you know what? It will be our fault. At the same time, we don't have any kind of clue what to do about inflation. Talked about this a bit last episode, and now experts are saying that the U.S. and other developed nations could well be heading toward a recession. The Federal Reserve has already raised interest rates and may do so again if the economy doesn't cool. The signs of recession are all there. There's the war in Ukraine, and all that's come with it the lingering after-effects of COVID, and the spiraling costs of just about everything. So maybe it's time to ask, what are our elected officials prepared to do about any of this? The Republicans and their allies are just willing to sit back and blame Joe Biden. That works for them now, and it may work into the midterms. But then what? Do they have a plan? Objective evidence says no. They haven't. While the Democrats have done a lousy job at articulating any plan themselves, the GOP have done no better. Sure, they've tossed red meat to their base, like increasing oil production by reopening the Keystone XL pipeline. And this is one of the most cynical things that the Republicans do. The trouble with the Keystone XL pipeline is that it's only 8% built, let alone operational. It would be years If they started, and Joe Biden, who withdrew the authorization, but if they started building again tomorrow, it would take years. Maybe if the Democrats get lucky, they'll be able to convince the public that culture wars 
don't bring gas prices down. They don't stock food shelves laid semi-bare by supply chain issues, or, for that matter, much of anything. Don't say gay bills may work in Florida, but that's not everywhere in America. As Rage Against the Machine once said, Wake up! Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again... Please stay well.